0: We are obviously studying Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. We've entitled our time in the book of Colossians, The Fullness of Christ or The Fullness of Jesus. One of our primary witnesses to an unbelieving world is the reality that we have found everything we need in Jesus Christ. As the world continues to stumble through the darkness, looking for something of value and something of significance, something to to feel complete, to feel worthwhile, as born-again followers of Jesus Christ, one of our main uh, reflections of Christ is that we have all that we need. But there's a story that John Corson shares about an extremely wealthy art collector named William Randolph Hearst. Mr. Hearst was looking through a book of famous artwork when a painting caught his eye. I want this painting for my collection, he said to his aides. But after making some inquiries, they reported that they were unable to locate this particular work. If you value your jobs, Hurst said, do whatever it takes to find that treasure and secure it for me immediately. Three and a half months later, the aides returned to him. And he asked, did you find that treasure? And they said, yes. And he said, well, did you purchase it? And they said, no. And he said, why not? And they said, because you already own it. It's sitting in your warehouse. The subtitle to Colossians could easily be, you already have all you need in Jesus, but do you know it? You have found everything that you're looking for if you have placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But do we, as a church, know that? Because when we're certain of it, That tells a story to an unbelieving world that they absolutely need to hear. Let me explain to you about the hope that I have found. That's what it proclaims. So as we begin uh, kind of the, the turning point in Colossians, Paul is again reminding us that we have all we need in Jesus. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for this family that you've blessed us with here at Central. We know that we are not in this walk alone. That each member of this body has been uniquely gifted by you, by your Spirit, to build up the other members of this body. We all play a role, we all play a part. It's not about one single person, Lord, we know this. But we want to be busy about your business. And not just busy for the sake of being busy, but Lord, we want to be like Paul, pursuing the most important things in life and the most important person in life. Lord, your word tells us that you have all that we need. And we know that part of our sanctification is really learning that and trusting in it and believing it. We're all distracted. We are all pulled in so many different directions. So Lord, I pray that during this time, you would just open our eyes to that reality. That it's, we've we found it. You found us. You loved us to, You've loved us first. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Pastor John shared last week in chapter 2, Paul covered a number of the different things that we see in this world that people pursue to kind of fill fill that God-shaped hole within them. And one of those things is just human philosophy, worldly wisdom. If we can just grow in our knowledge of the world around us, then we'll better understand how to live in this world and find meaning and find purpose. But the pursuit of human wisdom apart from God is a vain pursuit. All it is is hollow speculation. Knowledge devoid of God is empty. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul writes, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the, the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power." Knowledge is a wonderful thing as long as that knowledge is in the context of God Almighty. That there is a God who created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and die for the sins of humanity. And three days after he took on the sins of mankind, he rose again. And he lives today at the right hand of God. And if you'll put your faith and your hope in Him, in that finished work of the cross, you will be saved. That is the knowledge that must be made known to this fallen world. In Colossians 2.16, Paul says, beyond philosophy, there's vain religion. We can search for meaning and purpose in just morality. And again, morality devoid of the almighty God. That's legalism. He writes in Colossians 2.16, Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things things which, not, which has not been seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Paul says, don't let anyone cheat you out of your prize. You are a part of the family of God, and that cannot be stripped away from you. So many people want to add something to the gospel. You have to believe in Jesus and this. You have to be a part of this denomination or this church. But Paul says, don't let anyone cheat you out of the finished work of the Christ of the cross. If you've put your faith in the Jesus of Scripture, you are part of the family of God. Don't let someone trick you through false humility or false wit worship. Don't be puffed up about some secret knowledge or obsession over an obscure or unclear passage. Believe in the simplicity of the gospel and hold on to that. In verse 19, Paul points out that these kinds of people are out of touch with the head, and that's usually how it is. They spend more time trying to figure out how to best pray to angels or follow some obscure idea instead of just remaining in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul says, be wary of any individual. Be wary of any teaching or movement or community in which Jesus takes a back seat or he's not in the car at all. Everything we put our trust in has to center around Jesus Christ. And then in Colossians 2.20, Paul continues, he says, If you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. And this is the idea that he is going to move into as we begin chapter three. This is not about a religion where we try to put our flesh in a cage. It's not about obedience without affection. It's not about discipline without devotion. We're not talking about a contractual relationship. We're talking about a covenantal one. And as one commentator writes, legalism puts the wild animals of lust and hatred into cages, and there they remain, alive and dangerous, and a constant threat to their captor. But Paul's solution is more drastic. The animals are to be killed. The old method of holiness attacked symptoms. The true method goes for the root. That's the heart of the book of Colossians. We are talking about transformation, not behavior modification. We're not talking about controlling sinful behaviors. We're talking about dying to them. As Paul said in chapter 2, therefore, if you died with Christ, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the, the world, essentially live like it. beginning of chapter three, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. Now that if, that's a monumental if, isn't it? Everything hangs on that if. If you have died with Christ and if you have been raised with Christ, everything hangs on that. This is the resurrected life Paul is talking about. This is what it means to be truly human in a right relationship with our creator. This is the gospel reality for those who believe. If you have died with Christ and if you have been raised with him, we are not talking about a new religion We're not talking about a new set of morals or ideas or a new belief system. Paul is talking about the transformed life. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven. He didn't say, you have to have just a new set of ideas you have to be a better person. You have to be more moral. You have to believe in this ideology. No, something has to happen. You are born of the flesh. You have to be born of the Spirit. The Spirit of God has to prepare you for eternity. You must be clothed in Christ. That's what salvation is it's a new life. That's the if. Paul is talking about he expands on it in verse 3 and 4 when he says we have died and now our life is hidden with Christ in God did you know that your life is hidden in Christ now if you've placed your faith in him and when he appears we will appear with him in glory that's our story as believers. Philippians 3:20 Paul wrote for our citizenship is where in the United States of America no our citizenship is in heaven for which we also eagerly wait for the savior this is not our home we are sojourners we are exiles we are like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego in Babylon And we are called to be distinctly different than the world around us. Again, how are we different? We have found what we had been looking for. And more specifically, He has found us. Your citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. That is the story of the born-again believer. Now there's two analogies, two two forms of analogies that I I don't like to, to use because I just lose you and I'm going to use them anyway, one of them is sports analogies. I'm not going to use a sports analogy. One is a tech analogy. So there's a program called, and Pastor John can probably speak to this better than I can, because his home is fully automated. He gets home and his garage opens, and all the lights in his house come on. Classical music starts playing, the coffee pot turns on. I'm just kidding. Pastor John doesn't drink coffee. The Mountain Dew machine starts flowing. But its home is automated. And it's because there's a program called If This Then That. And that means if the garage opens, then these things need to happen. If the garage opens and the sprinklers turn on, then it's not working correctly or if the garage opens and nothing happens. Any of you have home automation? See, that's why we don't use technologies here. A few of you, Pastor John does. But the program is called If This, Then That. If this happens, then these series of events should take place. Does that make sense? You're tracking? Listen to what Paul is saying. If you have been raised with Christ, this should be taking place in your life. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you have been found by Christ, if you are a transformed individual born for heaven above, looking forward to that day that Jesus returns and takes us home, living in a fallen world, concerned about being a witness to those who don't know him, If that's you, then this is what your life should look like. This is who you are. This is what it looks like to be citizens of the kingdom of God. This is what it means to be fully human and fully alive. This is what we were created to be. And if that's not happening, it's not because Christ hasn't finished the work. There's an error in the program. We have lost sight of everything that we have in Christ. And here's the solution seek those things which are above. Seek those things. That means set your heart on, set your desires on these things that are above, and then set your mind on things that are above. Paul's talking about two parts of of what it means to be human, your desires, your wants, your affections, and your mind. Set those things on what's Above, We've already talked about in Philippians at length the importance of winning the battle of our mind in this fallen world. Too many of us are outsourcing our thought life. We're allowing the algorithm to tell us what to think about. We're scrolling YouTube and TikTok and Instagram, and we're saying, you tell me what to set my mind on. We're flipping through the channels, we're scrolling through Netflix for two and a half hours before we find one show that we want to watch, but we're telling everybody else, tell me what to think about. We turn on the radio, tell me what to set my mind on. We have to take back control of our thought life. And then we we have to set our minds on the things above. People say the heart wants what the heart wants, and that's a lie. That's worldly wisdom, as if we have no control over what we want. Scripture tells us the heart wants what we train it to want. The content we consume, it shapes our desires what we expose ourselves to consistently, it causes us to either conform to the world or be transformed in the image of Christ. How are we transformed? By the renewing of our mind. We play an active role in what we want. So what are the things above? That sounds kind of like up there, kind of we can't really hold on to it. What, what are the things above? What, where is this place? Paul tells us it's where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. See, the, Paul, the picture Paul is painting here is one of rule and reign. He says, set your mind on the kingdom of God. It's an issue of authority here. Set your mind on the reality that Christ is over all things. And what does a world look like where he rules and reigns? We won't fully know it until he returns, but we can allow him to reign in our lives, can't we? We can be obedient to him here and now. Remember Jesus said to the Pharisees, the kingdom of God is at hand, and yet I tell you the kingdom of God is already here. Because it is in the lives of believers who submit to His authority. Because He's a good God. And He's all-powerful. And He's a good provider. It's an issue of authority. Psalm 110.1 says, The Lord said to my Lord... It's prophetic, isn't it? The psalmist is writing about a time where the Lord said to my Lord, capital L, who's, who's God talking to Jesus, my Lord, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies why jesus says seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all of the other things will be added unto you we need to be a people who are seeking hard after christ setting our minds on the characteristics of his kingdom the true kingdom, the only eternal kingdom, a kingdom that is far more real than this world that we're living in right now. This kingdom, the kingdom of man, it's going to perish. This kingdom where we take from one another, we manipulate, we buy, we cheat, we steal, we're fumbling through the darkness trying to grab one, one thing that's valuable and meaningful and sometimes we don't care who it hurts. That world's not going to last because there's a good God who's going to put that all to to an end and establish His kingdom forever. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Paul is mentioned in Philippians 2, Chapter four: Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable—if anything is excellent or praiseworthy—think about such things. Are you winning the battle of your thought life? Paul also says in Philippians three: He says, "Not that I've already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I pressed." On to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Think about when the disciples asked Jesus, How how are we to pray? What is the example Jesus gave? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus teaches us, begin your prayer life with that mindset. God, I want to see you rule and reign in my life. I want to be a picture of what it means to trust you. I have found everything that I'm looking for in you. How much sense does it make not to be obedient to you? If only you have the words of life. Why would I be seeking like the world does in all these other places when I have found what I'm looking for? That should be the starting point of our prayer life and our thought life. The place where Christ reigns and where we are true citizens. It's from that place we will see the qualities of heaven here on earth lived out through the people of God. That's what it means to be the body of Christ. We are living out what it looks like in heaven. Perfectly far from it. But there should be hints of it. Look at verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 5. Verse 5 of chapter 3 of Colossians. and Here it is again. You might want to circle these three words. Therefore, put to death. Don't toy with, don't play with, don't put in a cage, don't try to control. No, put it to death. If you have died with Christ, put those old things of the world behind you. Keep them on the cross. Put them to death. And Jesus says, if you desire to come after me, you must die daily. This is an ongoing process. Unless someone here has figured out how to die to your flesh once and now you're good. I wake up every morning thinking about me. And it takes a very proactive uh, mindset to say, man, I'm so self-centered. Help me, Lord. Help me to put to death. This self-centered, self-serving mindset. And let me take on your mind because you humbled yourself and came as a servant. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. And here they are. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised, nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free, but Christ is all and in all. So what are we supposed to put to death? Paul gives us two lists. One list deals primarily with sexual sin, and the other list deals with anger and sins of the tongue. It's interesting that he focuses on these things when we're dealing with what it means to be witnesses in a fallen world. One way we are to be set apart by, from the world is our sexual ethic. I know we don't like talking about this, but one thing that should set us apart as the body of Christ is our view on sexuality, the church, the body of Christ, in its truest form, does not hate homosexuals. But we trust the Word of God. And we trust that God tells us that human flourishing exists within a covenantal marriage between one woman and one man. It's interesting that we live in a world where saying that out loud is seen as bigoted or hateful. And I want you to understand, if you s- struggle with same-sex sex attraction, God loves you. I, I, that is no different than men who struggle with pornography or women who struggle with pornography. But I want you to understand, God has a better way. Paul is concerned here, and and people ask, why are Christians so concerned about sexuality? Because God is. God created a good and perfect way to exist in this world, and when it comes to our sexuality, we know that it is in a covenantal, safe marriage between a husband and a wife, and the enemy wants to distort that. Because a a marriage, a godly marriage between a, a man and a woman who's doing their best to follow Jesus tells a wonderful story about Christ's love for his church. That word fornication, that sexual activity outside of the safety of the covenantal security of marriage. Uncleanness—that's contamination of character. It's the way fornication shapes our hearts and our minds. That word, passion—it's unbridled lust, it's uncontrollable sexual affection. And that phrase, evil desire—it's not a sin, guys, to experience sexual temptation. It is a sin to play with the idea in our minds and not put it to death. This world is sexually broken and our culture's paying the consequences for it. We have told God we don't believe what your word says about it. So we're going to do it on our own. That's the idolatry that Paul is talking about. We are going to seek out our own sexual ethic. And then we pay the price for it. Paul says, put that nonsense to death. Being ruled by our flesh was the old way of living. We can be free from that bondage, but that freedom is in Christ alone. So verses 5 through 7 that deals with a godly sexual ethic, and then verses 8 and 9 deal with anger and sins of the tongue. "Put Put off all of these, rid yourself of them, Paul says, put them behind you. The words anger and wrath and malice, anger means seething hatred, Malice or wrath means intent on causing harm. And then malice is putting that anger and wrath into action, forgetting that the object of our anger is loved by God and created in his image. Now, we may think of wrath as physical violence, but isn't it interesting that now he talks about sins of the tongue? See, not just physically pouring out our wrath on someone else, but verbally. He says blasphemy, which in Greek it refers to language that dishonors God. That term filthy language, a lot of times we think it's like joking around and using, you know, questionable uh, um, phrases and, you know, locker room talk, which isn't great in and of itself. But understand the context that Paul is talking about this. Filthy language is abusive language. Ugly, shameful. Do not lie to one another, Paul says. Do not gossip about one another. All of these things are sins of the mouth. They should not be the language of the body of Christ. But isn't it funny that the sexual ethic um, list, we can be like, yes, amen, we agree with that. But we become far too comfortable with the sins of the mouth. We can be so hard-nosed when it comes to God's sexual ethic, but when it comes to being bitter with one another or gossiping about one another, and we can be pretty graceful with ourselves when it comes to that. When a tide of passion or a surge of anger is felt, one author writes, it must be dealt with as the alien intruder it really is and turned out of the house as having no right to be there at all, let alone to be giving orders. We have become too comfortable with just anger in our lives and being rude with one another and being short with one another. It's interesting, again, that Christian communities tend to put so much more emphasis on one list or the other list. As one commentator points out, there are Christian communities that would be appalled at the slightest sexual sin, but are nests of malicious intrigue, backbiting, gossip, and bad tempers. And conversely, there are others where people are so concerned to live in untroubled harmony with each other, that they tolerate flagrant immorality. The gospel, however, leaves no room for behavior of either sort. None of these behaviors are fitting for men and women who are citizens of heaven. None of these behaviors are fitting of men and women who are ruled by our humble King, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, as God's chosen people, holy, which means set apart and beloved, cherished by God, put on, so we know what we're supposed to die to, we know what we're supposed to take off, and now we learn what we should be clothed in, put on tender mercies, Now, as guys, we hear that and we're like, no, I'm not putting on no tender mercies. (laughs) But we'll dig into these. Tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Who's Paul describing here? Jesus. This is the character of a citizen of heaven under the rule and reign of King Jesus Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. It holds all of these things together. So here it is, guys, we are God's chosen people And we have been set apart in this world. We are to be distinctly different from the world around us because we are loved by God. We are a people that have been sought out by God, saved by God, empowered by God, changed by God, and that should be distinctly different than the way this world operates. And we should have heavenly attire on. We should have clothing on that points to the kingdom that's to come. What we wear communicates something, right? Look at how much money Americans spend on clothing. The number is astronomical. I forget what it was, but it's in the tens of billions of dollars. We have so much clothes. Our closets are massive, Massive for many of you. Because what we wear communicates something about us. Now, we can get to the point where we're obsessed about it, and it's a sin, but some of you guys are professionals, and you go to work, and you need to dress professionally because you want to communicate to those around you you care about your job, right? If you're a police officer, and you show up in cargo shorts and a shirt that says Bud Light on it, which you shouldn't have in the first place, that does not communicate professionalism. So we understand that what we wear says a lot about maybe what we're trying to communicate. Personally, I love Calvary's because it's casual. I'm of the mindset that our church gatherings shouldn't look radically different than our everyday life. This is an extension of who we are. We're coming together as genuine men and women who just love Jesus and we're trying to figure out what it means to follow him. My grandfather, if you remember him, he came to Central dressed in a three-piece suit. But he wasn't trying to impress anyone. He did it to honor God. It was his way of showing God respect. So again, what we wear... We put thought into it, but do we think about what we put on in a spiritual sense? What people see on us on a daily basis, what people see us wearing. Tender mercies means deep sensitivity to the needs of others. Do we walk out into this world thinking, how can I meet the needs of someone else? Kindness is a Christ-like attitude towards others you value. You're valuable. Your life matters. God created you for a purpose, and you mean the world to him, and I'm going to treat you as such. That's kindness. Humility, if kindness is a a Christ-like attitude towards others, humility and meekness are Christ-like attitudes towards ourselves, where we Die to the idea that, hey, we're going to make a name for ourselves. And we live for the idea it's about the name of Jesus Christ. And I want to tell his story. And then long-suffering and bearing with one another and forgiving one another. What is that demonstrated in? Patience. How many of you excel at patience? No one? There's no one patient in here. You must be humble and patient, obviously. Man, patience is hard. Driving in Phoenix, patience is hard. But this was really convicting to me. Because the idea here that Paul is communicating is, as the body of Christ ruled by Christ, we are not to be reactionary. We should be thoughtful in our approach to others and patient in the way that we handle their perceived faults. That we should restrain or really die to our natural response and give way to a more deliberate way of living with one another. Like the whole idea of Let me, let me rephrase this a little bit. I think, again, we've become far too comfortable with attitudes and behaviors that are not re- representative of Christ and his kingdom. Not only how we treat people that we know, but how we treat people that we don't know. The way we talk about politicians and human beings that were created in the image of God and God loves them and God wants to save them. I think we've become far too comfortable with the type of hurried, rushed, worldly lifestyle where we don't have time for anyone else, and when we get interrupted, it bothers us. That is not the lifestyle of Jesus. Did Jesus ever seem rushed? Did it ever seem like he was in a hurry? Did it ever seem like he was caught off guard by someone, or he was put off by their presence. He was always measured and thoughtful in his approach, and he wasn't reactionary. And I know what what people love to go to, well, he flipped over the tables in the temple, didn't he? How many of you know that he was actually in the temple the day before? And he walked around, and he saw what was going on. And the next day is when he went in and he thoughtfully made a statement about just the horrific events that were taking place in God's house of prayer. He even took a moment to fashion a whip by hand. So don't think for a moment that Jesus was acting solely out of anger. Was he angry? Absolutely. This was God's house but it wasn't fleshly anger. If you guys are parents, you know what fleshly anger looks like. You know what it means not to be thoughtful about how we're correcting our children and just acting out in the flesh, and that should not be a characteristic of a child of God. We're all growing. We're all working through this, but we need to understand what we're aiming for, One author said, hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our day. You must relentlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Because here it is, guys, when we're rushed, when we're hurried, our witness suffers. We simply don't allow enough time to consider others when we're in that mindset. That is the way of our world. That is not the way of the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, we have time for one another. And, and, and I don't mean to be harsh, but it's it's illogical and absurd for us who have been the beneficiary of God's patience and long suffering and forgiveness not to grant the same to those around us. All right, let's close here. Verse 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or do in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Our hearts are Christ's, is, is Christ's home. Our heart is where Christ dwells. And Paul says, let God's peace rule over your hearts. And how do we allow that to happen? What did Paul tell us in Philippians? Do not worry, but instead, pray. Set your mind and heart on the things above and the peace of God that is beyond understanding will guard your hearts. Let the word of God dwell in you, Paul says. Let the word of God be the language of your community. Let it be the foundation of your living. Let it be the lyrics of your songs. Let God's word be the language of your heart. And in whatever we do or we say, let it be motivated by the person of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. That seems like it's a tall order. So with the power of the Spirit working in us and through us, we can at least be moving in the right direction. So verses in 18 through 25, I promise I'm not trying to skip over them. We actually dealt with these in depth in our study in Ephesians. Um, so if, if you're interested in, in digging deep into that subject, Paul just expands on what it looks like to be citizens in the kingdom of God as far as it Uh, marriage goes and uh, vocational um, opportunities. So if you're interested in that, you can jump online. It's Ephesians chapter five. It's a a series that Pastor John and I titled Learning to Walk. Um, And Paul really goes over exactly the same thing in that chapter. But for the sake of time and communion, that's where we'll close this morning. Let's have the ushers come forward and we'll have the worship team come up. And while they're coming up, let's pray together. Lord, I know for me as we approach a chapter like this and we see what you're calling us to, we see what it means to be citizens of heaven, a part of a new kingdom, a part of an eternal kingdom, and we see the behaviors that mark that kind of life, and then we examine our own lives and we see how far short we fall can be a little discouraging and i know that's not your heart your conviction is sweet and i lord i know you're just calling us into a deeper understanding of all that you've accomplished through the cross and through your son so lord open our eyes continue to open our eyes to all that we have in you that we don't have to continue seeking like we once did but we have found what we were looking for, and now we get to press into you with that freedom and understanding that you have already taken hold of us. Lord, we want to be a community that reflects your kingdom, that kingdom to come, but that kingdom that's already here, that already not yet. We have found a better way in you. We have found the only true way for living, and that's in a right relationship with our Father and our Creator. So continue to call us and teach us and train us and conform us and transform us into the image of your Son. And help us to be obedient to you, setting our minds on the thing, thing, that thing above that Christ is ruler over all, and He's our Savior. He's our Redeemer. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. And He's our brother. He's our friend. So help us to bring our thoughts back into just... Help us to take our thoughts into captivity.